on a number of different occasions, I've been asked if I thought that the unusual things that have been happening in our world by virtue of different um, disasters are evidences of God's judgment coming down upon America. When you look at the, uh, the hurricanes over the past years, the tornadoes, the volcanoes, the earthquakes, the tsunamis, the floods, the record-breaking snows, you could look at this and say, is that the hand of God bringing judgment upon us? And I'm not sure that anyone can give an authoritative answer to that. So I'm not even going to try. But I do know this, that before God brought judgment on the people of Israel, there were a series of events that took place to warn them that ultimately judgment was coming and that something needed to be done to correct their behavior. And if that was not done, then judgment by the hand of God would fall upon them as a people. Do I think we could be in a situation like that? I believe it's possible. I believe it's very possible that the hand of God is preparing to move in judgment upon the United States of America. When we see the rejection of truth in such blatant fashions, when we see such strong efforts made to discredit the name of Christ, to exclude him from virtually every part of our society, when we see the accusations that are made against those who are followers of Christ, and just the whole attitude and and then the behavior of our people, and, and quite frankly, in many cases, the behavior of people within the church. I cannot help but think that it is very possible that the things that have been happening have been gracious voices of God calling people, calling America back to repentance. Whether or not that's true, time will tell. But one thing I know that is true, God does this. And he did that for the people of Israel. I'm going to ask you again to turn back in your Bibles to the book of Amos, a book that perhaps is somewhat obscure because it falls into that realm of books we call the minor prophets. They're minor not because of the importance of their message, but because of the length of the book itself. There were the major prophets, which were rather lengthy. Then there are the minor prophets, which are are written in a much more compact way. And Amos falls into that. There are merely nine chapters in this book, not any of which are very uh, long in and of themselves. So when you turn to this chapter, or this first chapter of the book of Amos, we are introduced to a man that God used and raised up for the purpose of sending a message of warning to the people of Israel. Amos was not a trained theologian. He was, I guess what you would call a layman prophet. He was a man whose occupation was that of raising sheep and cultivating figs. He was raised in the southern portion of the divided kingdom in Israel, the portion that became known as Judah, from a town called Tekoa. And so 
He had as a background some knowledge of the workings of God, and here now he is called to move from the area in which he was raised up into the northern kingdom to a town called Bethel. And it's because Bethel was one of the very hubs of where the idolatry of the Israelites was centered. It was a place where rebellion against the true and the living God was manifest. And it was during the reign of a king by the name of Jeroboam II. Now, if you studied his life at all, as we have been doing uh, at least to a, a small degree in our evening services, and I'd encourage you to come for that. It will help you understand the flow of some of these events that we talk about, especially as we go in through the Old Testament. But uh, Jeroboam II was the ruler of the northern tribes during a period of time that Israel was actually experiencing a great deal of prosperity. They had become very wealthy for a variety of different reasons. And one of the reasons was they were not really engaged in any military conflict at the time. And so the people of Israel were not threatened. They were living in peace. They were living in relative safety. They had been doing very well financially. And it looked from a human point of view that everything was going exceptionally well. And then this man Amos made the scene. And he comes to Bethel and he begins a prophetic declaration, a message that God had given him in a very special way to deliver to Jeroboam II and ultimately to all of the people of that northern kingdom, all of the Israelites. And we begin to see how he starts. And it doesn't sound all that bad. Because when you look at this first chapter, and in fact it goes into the second chapter, and and what he begins to announce is that there is going to be a judgment that's going to fall, but he initially begins with the idea that it's going to be against the nations surrounding Israel. Look down here at verse 3. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Well, they would look at Damascus and say, this as the capital of the, the Syrians, that's great. They have been an enemy of ours over the years, and God's going to bring a judgment upon Damascus. Then you go further in that first chapter, down to verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Once again, the Jews are looking at this region that even to this day is still problematic for for Israel and judgment is going to fall upon them. Verse 9, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Verse 11, For three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. And, of course, he goes on in each of these to explain why the punishment was going to befall them. Verse 13, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of the people of Ammon, and for four I will not turn away its punishment. And then you get to the second chapter, and it continues, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Moab, and for four I will not turn away its punishment. Then you come to verse 4 of that second chapter, And now it's striking very close to home because judgment is being pronounced against the brothers of the Israelites, the southern kingdom of Judah. 
And the, and the message to them is, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. And he goes on to talk about their despising the law of God. And at this point, if you were an Israelite, you would have listened to this prophecy and you'd have been pumping your fist. You'd have been saying, Oh, this is great. Go get them. All of these people around us that have either been directly involved in doing us harm in the years gone by or are still a little bit of a thorn in our side and we would like to see them dealt with, God's hand is going to come down upon them and we're very excited about that. Until you come to verse 6. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel... And for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. They pant after the dust of the earth which is on the head of the poor and pervert the way of the humble. A man and his father go in to the same girl to defile my holy name. They lie down by every altar on clothes taken in pledge and drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. And you'll notice it is not the God. So now you have God's announcement to the Israelites that judgment was going to be coming upon them. And through the remainder of this book, Amos, under the direction of the Holy Spirit of God, reveals what the circumstances were that accumulated to bring about this judgment that was going to fall upon them, what it was that caused the hand of God to move against them. When you get down to the third chapter, you are introduced to a sermon that Amos is preaching. And he's going to preach three different sermons in this book. And the first begins here in chapter 3, right down from the first verse down through verse 15. And and basically what he's saying is this. You have been such a privileged people. You have had such incredible peace and safety. You've had material possessions that have allowed you to live in comfort. You have had everything that humanity would look at and say, what an incredible blessing from the hand of God. Look with me, if you will, to that second verse where he talks about this privilege that they had, not only in enjoying all of those benefits, but in being the people that God had set apart for himself. These were people that God had chosen to reveal himself to, or through them to the world, and to them through the prophets, through the writings of the law, through the unfolding of their history, time after time, God identifies them as a special people that knew Him and He who knew them. Verse 2, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. You had every opportunity, every advantage possible, and you have rejected me. You've pushed me out of the picture. There is no thought of me when you rise in the morning, when you lie down in the evening, when you offer your sacrifices. Oh, wouldn't that automatically mean that you're thinking? No, no. 
No, I know what's going on in your hearts. And you've been given every advantage. And you've rejected me. You go on into the next chapter, into chapter 4, and you see that he is repulsed by this materialism that has embraced their hearts. And, and as the Lord begins to reveal to them this problem, he, he tells them down there in verse 4, he says, Come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. Proclaim and announce the free will offerings. For this you love, you children of Israel, says the Lord your God. They have repulsed the Lord by not only the things that they possess, but now by the way they use their possessions and their rituals that they bring. They bring about a, a form of religion that is very defined and very orderly, but it has no heart with it. There's no real desire to interact with God. And he gives a whole bunch of reasons why this is the case. As you go back to that first verse, he talks about their, their opulence that they had that was accompanied by oppression. In other words, uh, let, me, let me explain what's going on here. These people had everything that they could possibly hope for by the way of the world's goods, but they would oppress other people to get more and to enjoy the benefits of having all of this opulence that God had put within the, the land of the people. And so he says, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, Bring wine, let us drink. And God says, your judgment's coming, and it's going to be very severe. Verse 2, the Lord has sworn by His holiness, behold, the days shall come upon you when He will take away, take you away with fishhooks, and your posterity with fishhooks. You will go out through broken walls, each one straight ahead of her, and you will be cast into Harmon, says the Lord. You have everything that you think you want, and some of that you've gotten at the expense of treating the poor badly, and I'm going to judge you for it. And the judgment is going to be like hooking you with a fish hook, and I'm going to drag you out, and I'm going to drag your posterity, and the walls of your safety are going to come down. And you'll know it was my hand. When you go down further to the sixth verse, God tells them that He is giving them a warning before judgment falls. I guess maybe this is where we start to really pay some attention. Because what's unfolding before us is that God's hand is moved in such a way as to warn the Israelites that this judgment is going to come. And look at how he does it. Verse 7. Pardon me, verse 6. Also, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. In other words, your teeth do not have food in them. 
and lack of bread in all your places. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I also withheld rain from you. In other words, there was a significant drought that God brought upon a portion of the people. I withheld rain from you when there were still three months to the harvest. The crops couldn't even finish growing because there was no rain. I made it rain on one city. I withheld rain from another city. One part was rained upon, and where it did not rain, the part withered. So two or three cities wandered to another city to drink water. But they were not satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I blasted you with blight and mildew when your gardens increased, your vineyards, your fig trees, and your olive trees. The locusts devoured them, yet you have not returned to me, said the Lord. I sent among you a plague after the manner of Egypt. Your young men I killed with a sword. Along with your captive horses, I made the stench of your camps come up into your nostrils. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. And the pattern goes on. And we begin to see that the Lord's hand has already been moving among the people of Israel, saying, I've brought different disasters into your lives to help you understand that I am the one who is in control. And you're not listening. You're not paying any attention to what I'm saying. And you will not return to me. So I'm going to judge you. We move down into the fifth chapter. And what do we find here? We find the Lord reiterating to the people that the places in which they have had their trust, where they've sought refuge, isn't in anything. It's in a person. And that's why he says down there in verse 5, actually it's the end of verse 4, Seek me and live. But do not seek Bethel. You remember Bethel was the place of this inordinate worship. Nor Gilgal, nor pass over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. What was God calling them to? He was calling them to Himself. He was saying, if you want to avoid judgment, you need to come to Me. You need to recognize that there is nothing on earth that will ever satisfy the deepest spiritual needs that you have, nor is there anything on earth that will lend itself to the appropriate worship of your Creator. You need to come to Me. He goes on in that fifth chapter to give more information. And uh, if you look down at verse 18, he talks to them about a false hope that they would have. Verses 18 through 20. And he talks about the day of the Lord as if this was going to be some great event that would bless them when in reality it was going to be just the opposite. When you get down to verse 21, he once again rebukes the ritualism that they had become involved in. He says, I hate, I despise your feast days, and I do not savor your sacred assemblies. In other words, when you come together, is it for the right reasons? Do you come together 
to worship me, to love me, to minister to one another? Do you come for the right reasons? And he says, no, you don't come even together for the right reasons. Even though you go through the motions of worshiping me, I'm not happy. Because I know the reasons for which you're coming. And he goes on to explain. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. Nor will I regard your fat, your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. For I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. But let justice run like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. What is it that the Lord's interested in? He's interested in the justice that we would demonstrate through our lives. Righteousness that would be lived out through the lives of the Israelites. And then he comes down to verse 1 of chapter 6. And he says, you know, in the, in the overall plan of things, The biggest problem you're dealing with is your complacency. You're just happy with the way things are. And uh, you're not doing what I set you apart as my people to do. You're not making an impact upon the world around you. You're not spreading the truth of who the one and true God is, Jehovah. As a matter of fact, you've even embraced some of the gods of the pagans. And you've brought them into the house of worship. And you have turned my name into a curse word. You have caused the world not to see the truth of who I am. But you've caused the world to see the hypocrisy of what you as the Israelites have become. Not a pleasant message. Boy, the book of Amos is really a downer. You go further into this book. And when you get to the seventh chapter, you find that the Lord is willing to say, I will delay for a time the judgment that I had planned to bring upon you. And so I'm going to delay that. However, when you go further into that chapter, you find that the judgment is now going to come. And when you come to verse 1 of chapter 8, God says, all right, I put off judgment. Now the time is ripe. You are like a basket of fruit that has ripened. And it is now time to bring the judgment. Listen to this. Thus the Lord showed me, behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? So I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, and here he begins the pronouncement of the judgment that's going to fall upon the people of Israel. And it's going to initially affect them physically. It says, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. And the songs of the temple shall be wailing in that day, says the Lord God. Many dead bodies everywhere. They shall be thrown out in silence. Hear this, you who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land fail, saying, when, when will the new moon be passed that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may trade wheat? In other words, we hate all these restrictions that God has placed upon us. Making the ephah small and the shekel large. You've cheated in the business offerings that you've done. And the Lord swears that judgment is coming. But it isn't just going to be a physical judgment. He also tells them this. I'm going to take away 
any spiritual nourishment that you may have had. And he talks to them about the spiritual judgment that's going to fall when you get down here to verse 11. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, and from north to east they shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. In that day the fair virgins and strong young men shall faint from thirst. Those who swear by the sin of Samaria, who say, as your gods live, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. Not a very pleasant book, is it? It's not the kind of book that you want to read through for devotions to encourage you through the day. But you know what? The message of this book, I think, is extremely appropriate for where we are today. As a country and as a body of believers. When the Lord delivers a message like this, He puts this under the umbrella of the declaration that he makes in the New Testament when he says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, complete, thoroughly furnished, to every good work. And so when we look at a book like this, we can read this and say, oh, those lousy Israelites, boy, they were just pathetic. Or we can say, what is it that God is trying to warn us about? And when you look at this, you begin to hear some very loud warnings. Listen to the first one. You're guilty of a smugness concerning God's judgment of others. Do you remember back in the first two chapters where we began and we looked at the judgment that was being pronounced against the nations that surrounded the Israelites? And this was good news to them. It's almost like they're saying, um, boy, God, get all those people out there. Man, isn't it wonderful that God's hand is going to come down on those wicked people? And they didn't see their own wickedness. They didn't understand that before you remove a splinter from someone else's eye, you cast the beam out of your own. Why was God going to judge those other nations? They were godless. Why was God going to judge Israel? They were godless. They did not recognize God for who he was. Isn't it easy to see sin in other people's lives? Isn't it easy to look at others and say, Oh, they are just, oh, they are just so off base. And then somebody might point out to you, Well, you know, you're guilty of exactly the same thing you're condemning in other people. Or maybe this might even be better. Does your own heart ever condemn you? 
for the things that you condemn in other people? Do you understand that there is a smugness today among Christians looking at the world? And you know what? We have a great time condemning the abortionists. We have a great time condemning people who are homosexual in their behavior. We have a great time condemning all of the sins of drunkenness and of of drug addiction and of all these other things. And we look at these people and we say, shame on you! When in God's family, there is hatred and there is gossip and there is jealousy and there is bitterness there is dishonesty there is cheating there is infidelity there is addiction maybe not to drugs but maybe to pornography and we're okay. We, we, we do everything the right way, so everything must be all right. God says, wait a minute. You people, you see the sin in others so well, but you can't even see it in yourself. And what would the Lord call his people to? I think it would be the same thing that he was calling Israel to. Look at yourselves. Be willing to examine what's going on in your own heart and in your own lives. And ask, does my life align with the righteous standards that God has? Do I have the same attitude that He has? Uh, When somebody does something against me, am I of a nature that says, I want justice? Instead of saying, maybe what I need to do is be willing to forgive. You see, we can become smug about the hand of God being on someone else because of their sin. But Lord, we we don't really want you getting involved with us. Um, I'm going to mention something to you that will probably cause some of you to feel that I'm using an inappropriate phrase. And it may be. But I don't think it is. I think, to a large extent, the Christian world has developed an attitude, has come within a a concept where we look at others and we say, go to hell. say we would never think something like that well folks i know that there are some people who would be just as happy if the terrorists would just all be killed and go to hell and sometimes racial prejudice would take people to a place where they would probably not say it openly but in the little discussions that they have with others of the same nature. 
they would feel that way. I've asked you all to read a book called Radical. We're going through this right now with our Sunday school class. And one of the things that just hit me between the eyes in this book is in this uh, chapter 4, where he begins the chapter by saying this, I remember exactly where I was sitting. It was in a home where leaders of an American church had gathered, a church that had demonstrated great kindness to me in the past, praying for me and even sending me financial support, completely unsolicited. The pastor sat immediately to my right, and a couple of deacons were on the other side of the den. This was a Saturday evening, and I had been invited to preach the following morning in their church. As we sat around the den, they asked me questions about how my wife and I were doing. I shared with them about inner city ministry in New Orleans, where we were living at the time. I told them about ministry in housing projects ridden with poverty and gang violence. I told them about ministry among homeless men and women who struggled with various addictions. Then I told them about ministry opportunities God had recently given me around the world. I told them about people's receptivity to the gospel in places that are traditionally hostile to Christianity. I told them that whether in the inner city or overseas, God was drawing people to himself in some of the toughest areas of the world. Expecting them to share in my excitement, I paused to listen for their response. After an awkward silence, one of the deacons leaned forward in his chair, looked at me and said, David, I think it's great you are going to those places. But if you ask me, I would just as soon God annihilated all those people and sent them to hell. That's exactly what he said. I was shocked and speechless. I had no idea what to say in response. I wish I had said something, but I'm still not sure what I would have said. Annihilate them? Send them to hell? After a moment of silence, the rest of the room resumed conversation as if nothing out of the ordinary had just happened. It got worse. The next morning, we arrived at the church building and the worship service began. The pastor rose to welcome everyone, and during his introductory remarks, he began talking about how thankful he was to be living in the United States. I'm not sure what sparked the rousing patriotic address that followed, but for the next few minutes he told the church that there was no chance he would ever live anywhere else in the world. Amens were firing, uh, were firing left and right from the crowd, engulfed in nationalized zeal. I was just waiting for Lee Greenwald, Greenwood to burst into song in the background, in case you don't know, I'm proud to be an American song. Minutes later, I got up to preach on going to all the nations with the gospel. When I finished, I walked down to the front while the pastor got up to close the service. These were his words. Brother David, we are so excited about all that God is doing in New Orleans and in all nations, and we are excited that you are serving there. He continued, And brother, we promise that we will continue to send you a check so that we don't have to go there ourselves. He wasn't finished. I remember a time at my last congregation when a missionary from Japan came to speak, he said. I told the church that if they didn't give financial support to this missionary, I was going to pray that God would send their kids to Japan to serve with that missionary. Did you get that? As if that's some horrible thing, that your kids 
would become missionaries. And so if you don't give, I'm going to pray that God sends your kids to Japan. Did the pastor just threaten his congregation with the punishment of going to the world? He continued, and my church gave that man a laptop and a whole lot of money. Apparently the threat worked. The service was dismissed and my wife and I climbed into the car to drive home. I could hardly believe the things I had heard. A range of emotions consumed me. Anger, sadness, disappointment, confusion. But as I began to process what had happened over the last 24 hours, I was struck by a frightening realization. Could it be that this deacon and this pastor expressed what most professing Christians in America today believe but are not bold enough to say? This may sound a bit harsh, but consider the reality. How many of us are embracing the comforts of suburban America while we turn a deaf ear to the inner cities in need of the gospel? How many of us are so settled in the United States that we have never once given serious thought to the possibility that God may be calling us to live in another country? How often are we willing to give a check to someone else as long as we don't have to go to the tough places in the world ourselves? How many of us parents are praying that God will raise up our children to leave our houses and go overseas, even if it means they may never come back? How many of us are devoting our lives to taking the gospel to people in hostile regions around the world where Christians are not welcomed? Certainly few of us would be so bold as to say we, quote, would just as soon God annihilated all those people and sent them to hell, end of quote. But if we do not take the gospel to them, isn't that where they will go? Maybe that helps you understand a little bit more why this book, I think, is so enlightening to biblical truths. He takes a rather radical approach, doesn't he? But does it hit home? Are we actively involved in sharing the gospel with the lost? Are we doing that? We would never come out and say, go to hell. That would just be unthinkable. But if we fail to make part of the focal point and the priority of our lives communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ and a message of hope to others, that's pretty much what we're saying. That's, that's pretty much it. There is a second issue that comes up. Failure to recognize that greater privilege brings greater responsibility. In Luke, the 10th chapter, we read this. The Lord is speaking to his disciples and uh, the disciples had gone out, uh, the 70 had been sent out and now they've come back and the Lord is expressing the things that came about as a result of their going into some of the towns in that day. And he says, woe to you Chorazin, woe to you Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes. In other words, listen, Chorazin, Bethsaida, uh, even Capernaum, which is going to be entering the picture here in a second, they've all had a great message of hope given to them, and they didn't repent. They didn't turn around. And if that same message had been given to other cities where God's judgment had fallen, those cities would have repented. What he's saying is, you people have been given a great opportunity. What are you going to do with it? 
And he goes on to say, but it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. He who hears you hears me. He who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Would you say that we are a people who have been greatly blessed? We have been. Have we been given wonderful resources? Absolutely. I mean, even in these days of financial difficulty and trouble, we live so well compared to what the rest of the world is experiencing. Even in what we call poverty, there is, there is still provision that many people in the world are not receiving. How many thousands of people are dying every day because they're starving to death? I mean, we... We just don't experience that here. And if we do, it's a major news story and because it's so unusual. Have we been given great privilege? Yeah. Does that mean we have great responsibility? Yes, we do. How then do we explain Christians who drop out? How do we explain that? How do we talk about people who just walk away from serving the Lord? How, how do we explain that there are times we thought, oh, it would just be so much easier if I just went off and forgot about the church and kind of did my own thing and I'll worship the Lord and I'll enjoy Him and He will be the, the center of my focus. And then follow through and do that. When I lived in Wisconsin, it was really interesting. We had a small country church, and I would go out into the farms and stuff to visit. This is before all the Jehovah's Witness and the Mormons would go door to door, and people would actually let you in and talk to you. And uh, I found out that there were probably more Christians who were not in, uh, affiliated with the church anywhere. They were just happy to drop out. I thought, how can this be? The Lord died for the church. Say, well, that, that's the universal church. Yeah, but it's manifest in its local congregations. And it's like, oh, and their spiritual gifts are going unused? Well, you have the idea. What about the past responsibilities? Well, I just don't have time to help out in the nursery. That's not my thing. Let somebody else do it. I can't teach the kids in Awana. I just have Wednesday nights to be at home and to enjoy my feet up on the cushion and drinking my root beer and my snacks. I'll let somebody else do it. Or maybe, you know, I've been serving for so many years, it's time somebody else does this. Well, if the Lord sends somebody else to do it, that's fine. But if he doesn't, what is that? What does that mean? What about the tragedy of inappropriate reactions? Do you know that pastors aren't perfect? Were you aware of that? That is probably the most shocking news that you heard all morning. 
that pastors aren't perfect. And do you know that there are times we might say something or do something that offends somebody? Do you know what I've seen? If you do that, don't look for them to be back at the next service. They're not coming back. Because it's all about the pastor. He offended me. Did you tell him? Was it actually an offense or was it just something you didn't like? Boy, it's awfully quiet in here. I have people say, Pastor, we love it when you tell it like it is. Do you love it now? (laughs) What about if a board makes a decision? People in authority. And you say, I'm not going to stand for this. Even though the Lord says you are to submit to those who have authority over you. As they would make a decision that I might not agree with. If the board says it, unless it's a violation of scripture, that's what I'm doing. Where are we? Are we, are we a whole lot different than Israel? We are. I, I know we are. I, I'm not trying to put that albatross around our necks. But there are truths here that make us examine ourselves, aren't there? One final thing. I've got to bring this to a conclusion. We're satisfied with ritualistic religion. We've got our little Sunday mornings. And some people say, well, I'll go to Sunday school and church. And others will say, well, I'll go to Sunday school, but not church. And I'll go not to Sunday school, but I'll go to church. And I'll never be back on Sunday night. Don't you know that's family night? Okay. I won't go to Wednesday night. I'm not going to be involved in prayer. But you know what? I would really like people to be praying for me and for my loved ones. But no, 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 no. I can't. I can't take time to come Wednesday night. You know, I just... There's other stuff going on. Mm, Okay. All right. I'm just trying to share with you things that I've observed. Is it because we love the Lord that we've gathered here today? I hope it is. I, I hope everybody here can say yes. Yes, it is. I'm just asking the question. I'm not making any accusations, not passing any judgment. Is it because we love one another that we're here today? Are those things part of the reality of our experience? Could we possibly be here because we think that the forms that we use to worship the Lord are the things that ultimately please Him? Or is it more an issue of the heart? You all with me? I'm not asking if you agree with everything that I've said. No, I understand that because when you come to application, you can apply things in a variety of different ways. But I think if if what I've shared with you today is reasonable, if it does fall into the pattern of the the type of, of lives that the Israelites lived that brought about judgment, would we be willing to examine ourselves and say, are there any of these things in my life that could bring about judgment? And then do something about it. Here is the good news. Are you waiting for this? You don't want to leave right now. 
Because if you do, you're going to be miserable. And some of you may be miserable anyway, but that's your problem. Here's something not to be miserable about. Do you remember what we read together earlier in the ninth chapter? The Lord said, I am going to forgive my people. I am going to restore my people. And you know what He's calling for? He's calling for self-examination that brings about repentance where it's necessary. And then the Lord says, I will forgive and I will restore and I will give you hope. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior, I'll forgive your sins when you come to Him and you trust in the One who died for your sins, was buried and rose again from the dead. And I will not only forgive your sins, I will give you the gift of eternal life and you will be with me forever. Isn't that the good part? So the Lord gives, He gives, you say, well, Pastor, you gave all this time to the judgment. Well, let's do things the way the Lord did it. For eight and a half chapters, He talked about judgment. And for a handful of verses, He says, now here's the good news. Good news. If we look at ourselves, I want to tell you something. This for me is a tough message because I've got so much of this garbage in here that I've got to deal with this. Otherwise, I get spanked. And if I go too far, the Lord says, come on home. You're messing it up. Come on home. And that's a gracious act. Folks, if we want to live the way the Lord wants us to, it's always going to be under the light of hope that says our God is willing to forgive and willing to restore when we come to Him on His terms. And He is willing to save and to give life when we come to Him on His terms. And I would just ask Grace Baptist Church, what do we need to do about this? Is there anything? Only you can answer that. Only you know. And I know about me. And there's work to be done. How about you? Let's stand. Father, this is not a very uh, pleasant book to deal with. I, I would imagine that in the ears of the Israelites, the message that... Amos brought them was not a very pleasant message. Father, it appears that the people did not respond and judgment fell and they were destroyed. To this day, those tribes have never been restored to the land. Our prayer would be, Lord, that you would not have to bring judgment upon us or upon our nation, but I pray instead that you would cause us to be motivated with righteous desires. I pray that it would be our goal and our desire to reach others for the Savior and to help them become true followers of Christ. And Father, I pray that as we go from here, it might not be with sadness or with discouragement, but that it might be with the hope that comes whenever your people are willing to admit their sin their weakness, their failures. And confess those sins and forsake them. Help us, Father, as your people to be pure, 
and holy, not only in your sight, but also in our practice. For the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.